every day, hugs and kisses every day. I love my family. I love my family so much, so much that I love them so much. Good evening and welcome to the fifth Palcast from the White Coat Underground. I'd like to thank Isis the Scientist from scienceblogs.com slash Isis the Scientist for coining the term Palcast. I'd also like to thank my daughter for allowing me to continue to use our theme song. I should, of course, remind you who I am. My name is Peter A. Lipson. I am a physician in the Midwestern United States, and that is how I get my blogging pseudonym of PALMD or PALMD. I blog at scienceblogs.com and at sciencebasedmedicine.com. Over at scienceblogs.com, we've gone through a few changes this weekend with a revamping of our back end, an upgrade of the movable type software that runs the blog. During that time, the bloggers have had near conniptions and various types of withdrawal symptoms in dealing with not being able to blog. We really need to get a life. Speaking of lives, uh, I did mention Isis the Scientist, uh, the pseudonym of the writer of the blog called On Becoming a Domestic and Laboratory Goddess. It's a very interesting blog, and she writes about physiology and motherhood and fashion, and it's a very successful blog probably because it mixes lots of different themes, which is very much like life. And finding a balanced life is a very difficult thing for many people to do, especially people who are both working and raising a family and engaged in the many different activities that it takes to get by day to day. These activities can be rendered even more difficult by anxiety surrounding health care. And that is what we will talk about today. Now, anyone who's ever been ill or had a relative who was ill knows that there's a great deal of anxiety uh, attendant on the facts and the processes of obtaining health care and dealing with illness. But to add insult to injury, if you will, uh, obtaining health care, especially in uh, the United States, is not a simple task. For those of the listeners who don't live in the United States or those Americans who might not be familiar with our system, uh, it works uh, as a system of private insurance for the most part. This means that if you do not purchase your own insurance in one way or another, you are not insured, and you are responsible for every penny of health care costs that you incur. So as not to be completely barbaric, we do have some public insurance programs. Uh, the largest is Medicare, which basically covers the elderly and, to some extent, people who are disabled, and Medicaid, which covers the poor and covers should-be-in-quotes. Generally, Medicare covers the elderly, and they define that as being over the age of 65, but there are certain restrictions. It only covers you if you've actually worked. And Medicaid is administered by state governments, and they pretty much get to decide who does and doesn't get it. Now, also to uh, avoid barbarism, people with emergent medical problems cannot be turned away from emergency departments. So if you, for instance, fall and break your arm, an emergency room is required to treat you until you are, quote, stabilized. And that is independent of any insurance you may or may not have or any ability to pay you may or may not have. So the millions of Americans who are uninsured or underinsured often seek help only for the most dire of conditions. Now, I personally come from a moral and ethical tradition in which I do believe health care is a right. But we as Americans have not made that decision. Or have we? You see, 
we've decided health care isn't a right in the sense that people still have to purchase health insurance and aren't entitled to care just by dint of being human and alive. On the other hand, we don't turn people away from emergency departments either. We do recognize that part of human dignity is the availability of at least emergency health care. So given that Americans feel a little bit conflicted about the nature of health care as a right versus an earned privilege, how are we ever going to develop a rational health care system in this country? I, for one, don't know. One of the questions that some of my more libertarian friends and colleagues will often ask is, if I'm going to posit that health care is a right, who's going to pay for it all? My answer, looking them straight in the face, is, well, you and me because that's just fair. That's not usually a very popular thing to say. But we're paying for it anyway. There's an interesting study in the Annals of Internal Medicine in, uh, let's see, what month was it? In December of 2008, that looked at the discontinuities faced by people who are on Medicaid insurance. And what it looked at was these interruptions that people get in their health insurance. They uh, are on Medicaid, and then they get a job, and then they lose their job, and they're back on Medicaid again, or they exceed the amount of Medicaid they're allowed to have. There's a lot of interruptions in that care. And the conclusion, based on the uh, numbers that they studied, and I'll quote the conclusion in the abstract, was interruptions in Medicaid coverage are associated with a higher rate of hospitalization for ambulatory care-sensitive conditions. Policies that reduce the frequency of interruptions in Medicaid coverage might prevent some of the health care events that trigger hospitalization for high-cost health care spending. Now, it's time to translate that. Let's take, for example, diabetes. Diabetes is a condition uh, that we know if you uh, control it, you reduce the rates of heart attack, stroke, kidney failure, blindness, amputation, and all kinds of uh, horrible things. Someone who's on Medicaid has access to doctors, has access to preventative care. Somebody who doesn't, doesn't. These gaps in care can become not only expensive in a humanitarian sense, but in a fiscal sense as well. So when uh, my more conservative friends look me in the eye and say, who's going to pay for it? The answer is, you're already paying for it. You're just paying for it and getting bad outcomes. Wouldn't it be smarter to pay for it and get good outcomes? Now, unfortunately, this brings up a whole host of uh, other issues. If we're going to pay for health care for everyone, uh, that means not everyone is going to get everything that they want all the time. There will be some sort of rationing. This goes very much against the American value system. On the other hand, we're rationing now. We're just not doing it in any organized fashion. I, for instance, could probably go out and get as many MRIs of whatever limbs and body parts I wanted, and somebody without insurance could probably never get one, unless there were some sort of horrid emergency. That's rationing. It's just irrational rationing, if you will. But enough of my rantings about how insane my more conservative and libertarian friends are when it comes to health care. One thing I've tried to do in these podcasts is tell you a little bit about what it's like to be involved in the healthcare system, both as a physician and as a patient. Uh, I've spoken to you on earlier podcasts about the need for somebody to advocate for you when you're in the hospital and about different ways to improve your interactions with the healthcare system. Uh, there's a phenomenon which uh, we need to talk about, which uh, a lot of people aren't aware of. 
most of us, if we're lucky, have a personal physician, whether it's a family practitioner or an internist. But one thing you might not know is that uh, if you end up in the hospital, your doctor may not see you there. There is a whole set of doctors out there devoted to inpatient care. They're called hospitalists. Uh, in internal medicine, uh, the hospitalists are specialists in internal medicine. In pediatrics, they're specialists in pediatrics. But what they do is they take care of only patients who are in the hospital. This allows the primary care doctors to have more time with their patients in the office. It also helps defray the costs that primary care physicians face by losing time at the office in order to go to the hospital. You see, the way the primary care doctors are compensated in the United States is not particularly rational. And from an economic standpoint, it's becoming more and more difficult for physicians to see their own patients in the hospital. And it's not always a bad thing. While hospitalists may not know their patients as well as the outpatient physician, they are very good at managing the complexities of inpatient care. And inpatients are much sicker than they used to be. Even 20 years ago, it wasn't unusual for somebody to be admitted to the hospital for just a, quote, workup. Now, eh, not so much. You have to be very ill to get yourself admitted to a hospital. The patients who are in American hospitals these days are much sicker than they were 20 years ago. The other interesting thing is a lot of the same people end up in the hospital over and over again. As people age, they're sick more and more often, and we keep them alive a lot longer than we used to be able to do. Unfortunately, a lot of this time is often spent in the hospital. So way back when, when I was a hospitalist, I saw the same patients over and over again, and I got to know them pretty well. Hospitalists can do a very good job, but that is not always comforting to a patient or to the family of a patient they would really like to see their doctor come and see them in the hospital, even if they might not be able to provide the same quality of care as a hospitalist. Some uh, internists will make what's called social rounds, where they will go and visit their patients and show the flag, if you will. And I promise I won't say, if you will, again. But there are still a few of us holdouts out there who do both. To give you a, an idea of why this is so difficult, let me give you an example of how primary care physicians are compensated in the U.S. In general, physicians are compensated for things that they do rather than, say, diseases that they prevent or protocols that they follow. So, for instance, if a hypertensive patient comes to see me and I ensure that their blood pressure is under control and I review their preventative medicine strategies and I vaccinate them, I may have prevented several preventable problems, such as stroke, heart attack, kidney failure, pertussis, measles, you name it. I may have spent a half an hour explaining to a diabetic that they need to inspect their feet every single day, going over their medication regimen with them, and uh, studies show that I've actually prevented a lot of serious medical problems by doing that. And I can charge about $70 for that, maybe 100 now, if I were to just walk into the room and clean out their ears, I could charge 100 bucks right away because that's a procedure. Primary care medicine is not a procedure-driven specialty. It's a more cognitively intense specialty. So I have to do a lot of cogitating to make a buck. Anytime I spend going back and forth to the hospital 
is lost revenue. And seeing a patient in the hospital doesn't pay very much better than seeing them in the office. In the time that I spent going to the hospital, dealing with the intricacies of hospital care and seeing the patient, I could have seen maybe 10 other outpatients. Economics are very unfriendly to primary care physicians who want to see their own patients in the hospital. So, given the fact that when you go to the hospital, you may not be seeing your own doctor, and given the fact that electronic health records are by no means universal in this country, what steps do you need to take to ensure that when you go to the hospital, there will be as few glitches as possible? First of all, you need to keep a list of your current medications and a list of your current medical problems somewhere easily accessible. You also need to keep whatever advanced directives you may have. This can be a source of great frustration to medical professionals. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I ask a patient about their medical history and their medications and they actually get angry with me. That should be in the chart. I've told uh, somebody that somewhere else at some point. Well, believe it or not, despite the fact that technology exists, we don't have any central clearinghouse of your medical information. If you want us to take the best care possible, you better have some idea what medicines you're taking. In fact, if you're going to end up in the hospital, it's not a bad idea to just take your arm and sweep all of your pill bottles into a bag and bring it with you. And this is one area of personal responsibility in healthcare that I can actually get behind. If you have the cognitive abilities to keep track of the basics of your health care, you have to do it. And this actually leads us conveniently to the final thing I did want to talk about today, which is personal responsibility in health care. Americans talk a very good game about personal responsibility. But when it comes to health care, uh, we're not quite as sure. We definitely think other people need to be very responsible. But we're a lot easier on ourselves. This comes up in very tangible ways. For example, there are companies who will give you a discount on your health insurance for not being a smoker, which effectively works out to a penalty for being a smoker. Economically, this certainly makes sense. Smokers use up far more health dollars than non-smokers. However, smoking is an addiction. It is a medical problem. So, to penalize smokers is, in some ways, no different than penalizing someone for being hypertensive. But only in some ways. Because smoking is a behavior, it is perhaps somewhat more alterable than hypertension. But only somewhat. If a health insurance plan is going to penalize smokers, then I would say it also has a responsibility to help them quit first. So basically, once you start talking about penalizing people for their health problems, you're opening up a pretty big can of worms. And that actually brings us full circle. Health insurance is about pooled risk. If everybody pays into the system, the healthy people basically pay for the unhealthy people. And the more people you have in the system, the healthier financially it'll be especially if you don't segregate the healthy people from the unhealthy people. And what is the largest risk pool? The entire population, of course. So maybe it's the case that the best health care and the most cost-effective health care are actually the same thing. If everybody is insured, the financial risks to the population at large 
is probably reduced, and certainly costs will be somewhat more predictable. Such a system, which one would probably call universal health insurance, or a single-payer system, happens to be congruent with my own values. You know, medical ethics is a funny thing. It's very much embedded in the culture in which it exists. And while a commonly stated ethic in medicine is social justice, I don't really think that's entirely congruent with American culture. I happen to find that unfortunate, but I still think it's the truth. And this is an issue that's going to come up tomorrow. Uh, right now I'm down at the Science Online 09 conference, which is a conference about science writing online. There are a whole bunch of people from scienceblogs.com and from the Nature Network's blogs. There's folks here from all over the world, and it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be uh, co-moderating a discussion about pseudonymity and anonymity on the Internet. And for me specifically, this becomes an issue because I am a physician blogger. Early on in my blogging career, I was very careful to guard my anonymity online. Among other things, I hoped that that would provide an extra layer of protection when it came to presenting case studies. That is, the anonymity of any patients I might be vaguely referring to would be further enhanced by the fact that no one knew who I was. During a very vigorous discussion online, another blogger pointed out to me that if I count on my own anonymity to help protect the anonymity of my patients, once I am outed, either voluntarily or involuntarily, that strategy is rendered retroactively invalid. That is, that layer of protection for my patients disappears. That's not a good thing. So, over time, I've allowed my anonymity to slip into more of a pseudonymity. That is, I still don't blog under my real name as such, but I make it pretty easy to figure out who I am. That has changed my thinking entirely when it comes to case studies. There are so many cases that I encounter every day that I would love to write about, but I'm going to have to let there be a more temporal mask on the identities of my patients. That is, I do need to allow the tincture of time to guard the anonymity of my patients and not rely so much on my own beliefs and my abilities to mask a patient case. And I think that's where we'll call it quits for the day. Uh, remember that you can continue to discuss these issues over at the White Coat Underground at scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground. I am going to head back downstairs to talk to my fellow bloggers from around the world, and I'll talk to you next week.